and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode of the history of Mormon plural marriage. Now, I'm going to give you a a version of a talk that I gave on Pioneer Day to the Oasis Group in Salt Lake City, but it's going to have a lot added to it. Pioneer Day, for those who don't know, is the celebration of the day, July 24th, 1847, when the first Mormon wagon train comes to arrives in the Salt Lake Valley in Utah. Brigham Young stands from a high hill, overlooks the valley, even though he's been sick with fever, and says, this is the right place. And then, of course, all the Mormon pioneers come into this valley, and every year the Mormons recreate this event. Uh, they recreate the the pioneers coming into the valley on Pioneer Day, July 24th. And, of course, we have in Utah still what we call the Days of 47 Parade, which is one of the biggest parades in Utah. I think the, the LGBT Pride Parade is uh, the only parade now that rivals rivals that parade because it's sort of counterculture. But I grew up as a girl walking in that parade. Our ward, um, we would dress as pioneers. I remember dressing as a pioneer girl. And um, in the few short time that um, Howard W. Hunter was the prophet, he was there and we got to sort of see him in our procession. And we just felt really proud to walk down the streets of Salt Lake as if we were pioneers walking in the footsteps of our ancestors. Of course, the celebration has gone on for a long time. It's one of the biggest celebrations in Utah. It rivals the 4th of July. People get off work here. It's a state holiday. And of course, if you live outside of Utah, Southern Idaho and parts of Nevada and Arizona celebrate the day almost as largely as Utah does. And of course, even European countries, I've heard of them doing, you know, recreations of the pioneer journey and Mormons do the trek. It's it's a big deal when the when the pioneers come into Salt Lake. It's it's something that really sort of solidifies Mormon heritage. And as the church becomes more global, it becomes sort of a problem to focus on this one event. But this is this is Mormonism as it stands. So I'm doing something kind of out of character for me. I love to do things thematically. I love to do them in accordance with proper dates. And so it kind of pains me that I'm not I'm not recording this for Pioneer Day on Pioneer Day, but I did give this on Pioneer Day one time, so it counts. And you can, of course, listen to this again uh, on Pioneer Day, should you feel the need to celebrate. When I gave this talk, I opened up my little presentation with a Jackson Pollock painting. Now, if you were by a computer and you can Google a Jackson Pollock painting, I would suggest that you do this. Jackson Pollock is one of the most famous American painters. He was an abstract expressionist painter, and he had sort of that drip painting um, style. So picture a blank canvas with paint smeared all over it, and then drips of paint sort of splattered onto the canvas. Now, when I was at Utah State uh, studying art, One of the best classes I ever had that taught me to think critically was a professor, and I can't recall his name now, unfortunately, but he got up and he shows this Jackson Pollock painting. And this Jackson Pollock painting is this um, beautiful green and blue and black painting. And it was was a really powerful, beautiful painting. And and the, um, I think, 
I think it was called Ocean Grayness is what it was called. And uh, the professor gets up and he says, okay, I want you to tell me about this painting, but first let me give you some background on the painting. So, of course, he tells us a story of how Jackson Pollock was a young boy and the ocean on a boat with his little brother and a wave comes and overturns the boat and his little brother falls in the water and they both fall in the water and his brother drowns and Jackson Pollock is trying to get his brother, trying to swim to the surface, trying to survive. It's this terrible, tragic story about why this, this painting was painted. And we're, you know, we're, we're caught up in this story. And then the, the professor says, tell us about this painting. What, what do you see here? And so, of course, all of us know-it-alls are raising our hands saying, well, I think that the black, you know, represents the darkness he felt. And, you know, the gray is the helplessness that he felt and, and all of this stuff. And the professor, after we're done, uh, says, actually, I made up that story. That never happened. It's, it's not a true story. I just made that up. And your job as artists or art critics is not to tell us the story behind it, but you're supposed to tell us the techniques that he used and the tools that he used. Why did he put the colors here? What does it do? What does it evoke for the viewer? And it was a really good lesson for us. We had sort of been duped this idea that we, that we think that we know why people do things and we think we know what a picture means and we don't. And sometimes the stories can change and influence that. And I, I bring this Jackson Pollock painting up to talk about how we view Pioneer Day. Because as you're going to hear, Pioneer Day for me becomes this story right? It becomes a story for Mormons um, to, to celebrate their heritage. I, I often talk about the difference between heritage and history, and this is a perfect example. The Pioneer Day celebration becomes a painting of heritage. It's not history, because as we know, um, as we've learned in this series, the Pioneer Trek was anything but glorious. It was complicated. It was flawed. Lots of people died. There was a lot of apostasy. There was a lot of dissent. There was a lot of death. Uh, it wasn't this great, beautiful thing, but it becomes, it becomes this for the saints, and it becomes this way for several reasons. So I want you to keep the Jackson Pollock painting and the example of that in your mind and uh, as we tell these stories. Now, let's get rid of art for a minute, and I want you to picture the frontier. It's the summer of 1849 in the proposed state of Deseret in the frontier west. Okay, so get this in your mind and picture July 24th. Now, in 1849, it would have been the second anniversary when the Mormons arrived in what is now known as the Salt Lake Valley. And as you know, the state of Deseret was a provisional territory that would only be around for two years. It was never really recognized by the U.S. government. This is what Brigham Young was hoping for when he wanted to get statehood. If he couldn't get statehood, he was going to develop his own country and he wanted to be recognized. He started developing his own alphabet, his own language, his own money system. And of course, this would be a failed system. It didn't work very well. But in 1849, it would have been the state of Deseret. And of course, the Utah Territory comes around in 1850 as part of the Compromise of 1850, and Utah Territory uh, is created by an act of Congress. So when you're picturing it, I want you to picture the grid system that Brigham Young was setting up. 
It would have been blocks of adobe homes and cabins with some tents and forts. Like there was one in Midvale, Utah, Fort Union. It was a rock wall on 10 acres protecting 10 homes. So it was very rudimentary. Salt Lake would be set up fairly quickly for a frontier town and would expand fairly quickly, but it was still very early on in the stages. Now, a trail had been set up to connect Utah to California for the impending gold rush. It was called the Gold Corridor, as it were, and it started to bring a lot of commerce and travel through the territory of Deseret. It would have been one month before the historic 1849 Pioneer Day celebration, so in June of 1849, that lots of gold rushers start coming through the territory. This is where we get the term 49ers. 1849, all the folks rushing to scoop up California gold. And these 49ers would stop in the Utah Territory, Salt Lake Valley trade, and bring much-needed supplies to Utahns while avoiding less difficult paths on their journey. So I want you to picture that July. It would be a hot morning. You would have outsiders camped out there on their way to California and Mormons trying to, you know, only being there for two years trying to make a living and survive. And that morning at 7 a.m. on July 24th, 1849, cannon fire would awaken the Salt Lake City inhabitants and visitors. Now, if you... If you were an outsider and you had heard stories about Mormons anyway, cannon fire might make you nervous. The cannon fire was followed by the playing of martial music, and it was actually for the first 24th of July celebration. It wasn't known as Pioneer Day until uh, September of 1850, when the last of all the Nauvoo uh, pioneers come to Utah. Startled outsiders might have suspected rogue Mormon militias until they would see Mormons sort of scurrying in their best clothing to the provisional tabernacle on Temple Square. Now that tabernacle at the time was called the Bowery and it isn't like the stone one on Temple Square today. It was made of brush and timber. In this little makeshift tabernacle, they gather to enjoy several things. As one onlooker recalled, quote, they would enjoy music, firing, and musketry, and artillery, shouts and hurrahs, the unfolding and hoistering on a large liberty pole of an immense national flag made by Mormon women. Now, again, July 4th, Independence Day, this was sort of a recreation of that, July 24th. It wasn't a patriotic celebration of the United States like it's sort of become now. It's a patriotic celebration of Mormonism and Mormon independence, if you will. And the Mormon women sew their own flag and, and they're talking, they're creating their own language and they're creating their own country. The day included a procession. Um, it had a big parade, uh, not like the modern day parades now, but it was more military in nature. There's a brass band. They said that there were 24 bishops uh, carrying banners from their respective wards. Um, and so the bishops would carry, each ward would have a banner. The bishops would carry it. And then 24 young women um, would carry a Bible and a Book of Mormon. One of the banners proclaimed, Hail to our chief. And of course, by chief, they meant not the president of the United States. They meant the president of the church, Brigham Young. Uh, Richard Ballantyne was a young man in the procession, and he carried a copy of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which he, you know, walks, finishes the procession, and at the end solemnly presents it to Brigham Young. Um, 
with this speech about independence and the sacred founding of the country and how Latter-day Saints are, you know, too celebrating their independence. And he refers to Brigham Young as, quote, our future governor and defender of our rights. And then there were the crowd gave three cheers of long live the governor of the state of Deseret, even though it wasn't recognized by the U.S. government. And then Erastus Snow, Erastus Snow, who was an apostle, read the Declaration of Independence to the crowd. They gave, they uh, had the Hosanna shout, which is a Mormon thing that they do collectively. Um, it's an old ancient Israelite practice where it's reserved for only the holiest and happiest of occasions. Like, And they did this in the Kirtland Temple and the Nauvoo Temple. And then they had food and games and presentations. It's said that 60 Indians came to celebrate with them. And it was just this great, this great thing. There was a man um, from Pittsburgh passing through to California, and he recorded, quote, I shall never forget the first sight of this valley. It shall ever my mind as the most beautiful spectacle I ever beheld. There are about 10,000 Mormons here. And historians say actually there were about half that at the time. They say that they will welcome to their society any good citizen, no matter, no matter what his religion may be. Their motto is do right. At a Sunday service, as a clerk announced that on Tuesday they would have an anniversary feast, as it was the day of the month, July 24th, on which they arrived at their present snug quarters. He stated that the city would be roused early in the morning by the firing of a cannon and the music of a brass band. A procession would then be formed, which would march out the town at 2 o'clock. Dinner would be served. The immigrants were all invited to attend. End quote. Now, that was really sort of the first celebration. Now, the second celebration in 1850 would be good for the pioneers settling in the valley right before federal intervention comes. Now, in, in this celebration, we have church leaders having dinner with Howard Stansberry and John Gunnison, who were explorers in the area, trying to settle. They had uh, surveyed the Great Salt Lake. You might know that if you know the history. In fact, there's an island in the Great Salt Lake called uh, Stansbury Island. And for a time, I lived in Stansbury Park, which was named after Howard Stansbury, one of these surveyors. And uh, they, you know, give these diplomatic speeches. They toast to freedom. Here is what Brigham Madsen writes, quote, not to be outdone, Mormon patriarch John Smith reciprocated the words of praise for the army engineers. Captain Stansbury and the officers under his command are worthy of the praise for their prudence, per perseverance, industry, benevolence, and urbanity. They have done their work honorably for the country. May honor, fame, and power be in their portion forever, end quote. Now, this was the 1850 celebration. It was sort of, how do we keep celebrating this idea of Mormon independence. And in 1850, the second time they celebrate, they decide to get together with leaders and honor them. Leaders uh, that weren't Mormon and honor them. Now I'm going to divert you for a second to a story of a history, the history of a Mormon woman named Bertha King. Now, do you remember we did an episode on Hannah Tapfield King? She is a remarkable pioneer. And if you haven't listened to the episode on Hannah Tapfield King, stop the episode right now go listen to Hannah Tatfield King's episode, and then come back. It's episode 64, and you need to have it as background information. Now, Bertha King is the daughter of Hannah Tatfield King, and she would have come to the United States in 1850, and she would have traveled west with the Mormon migration. 
When she was uh, 19 years old, she was sealed as the fourth plural wife to 35-year-old David Canlin. So she was 19, he was 35 years old, and she would be wife number four. This is her first marriage. We don't know a lot about their wedding, except that Canlin came to Utah and was the proprietor of the Globe Hotel. And he becomes a famous actor in the Utah Territory. He had 36 children total, and he is probably best known for writing the first published series of um, Latter-day Saint pamphlets at the time. They were written in 1846 and known as the Fireside Visitor or Plain Reasoner. And if you want to look these up, you can find these online. You can see the text and see what sort of was being taught in Latter-day Saint homes. Look at them as the first sort of CES seminary curriculum or family home evening curriculum even though those institutions didn't exist. So uh, the Fireside Visitor or Plain Reasoner. They were um, first published in Liverpool when Canlin was serving a mission in Britain. And they're signed by David C. Kimball. And David C. Kimball is actually David Canlin. And the reason why he signs them as David C. Kimball is because he had been adopted through the law of adoption into the family of Heber C. Kimball. And again, the law of adoption isn't how we understand adoption today. It was more of a spiritual ceiling to the family of Heber C. Kimball. Canlin would marry Mary Jane Webb on October 29, 1852. She would die three months later. So he marries Lucy Jones on April 9, 1853, and Bertha Mary King on December 25, 1854. So this is Bertha King. Her marriage is on Christmas of 1854. He divorces both women on April 9th, 1855, stating that, quote, my wives, Lucy and Bertha, became so possessed of evil as to demand a bill of divorcement. If you look at the history of David Canlin at the DUP, the Daughters of the Utah Pioneer Museum, he sort of records his dramatic tale of marital problems. This is, this is what the family history says, quote, Unknown to David, mischief had been brewing in the hearts of those he believed to be true. His two young wives, Lucy and Bertha, combined their ideas of dissatisfaction with their lot and demanded a divorce at once. David tried to persuade them to patience and forbearance in all things where wrong existed. President Young advised him to grant their wishes, and they were set free in April of 1855, end quote. Now, this is the story that his family tells, right? That these two women were up to mischief, and, and their hearts weren't set upon the things of God. And they left him because they, they weren't true and they weren't faithful. As in most such cases, there are more sides to the story, right? In a book written by Anna Eliza Webb, who Anna Eliza Webb Young, who becomes Brigham Young's apostate wife, as she refers to herself. David Canlin was a prominent, quote, prominent Mormon elder and confidential friend of the prophet. He was, as he pleased, to term himself an aristocrat and would not descend to the performance of menial labor. But as a family must live somehow, the wives have to get along as best they can. But they live in the depths of poverty and degradation while he enjoys prophetic favor, stands high in the church, and is a Beau Brummel in dress. Now, uh, she's referring to George Bryan Brummel, who was an Englishman who became famous for his fashionable lifestyle. And he sort of sets uh, styles for men's clothes and manners for 20 years. So she says she refers to David Canlin as Beau Brummel in dress. He's the Mormon Beau Brummel. Okay, I want you to hold that story of David Canlin 
and Bertha King for a minute. We're going we're gonna to go back to the history of Pioneer Day and the Mormon Reformation. Now, the Mormon Reformation is going to fit into this because it's around this time that the saints come. They come in 1847, and by 1855, a major drought strikes the territory. There's very little rain, and the rivers get really, really low. And this is where we get the apocryphal story of the grasshoppers and the crickets who start destroying all the Mormon crops. So I want you to picture it as like an Old Testament plague of locusts descend upon this beloved valley. That winter, food becomes really scarce, and it starts to look really bleak. It becomes one of the most famous winters on records for those pioneers as one of the most worst, brutal, and trying ever. Heber C. Kimball wrote his son, quote, Dollars and cents do not count now in these times, for they are the tightest that I have ever seen in the territory of Utah. Now, that's a lot coming from Heber, who would live poor most of his life. This was a really rough time. So let's chalk it up to tough times to say um, that the extreme trials and starvation and desperation are just what Mormon leaders need to band the saints together who are now spread out. And um, some historians really think that the Mormon Reformation is sort of constructed, we talk about this in another episode, but constructed to band the saints together. It's really the LDS leaders get together and whether consciously or unconsciously decide to use this suffering as an opportunity to really reform the saints and who are now spread out all over the valley and sort of bring them together together into obedience. Now, we've talked about him before. He's one of my favorite characters in Mormon history. His name is Jedediah M. Grant, and he's a counselor in the first presidency to Brigham Young. He's known as Brigham Sledgehammer. Now, when you think of like Porter Rockwell, who was a bodyguard, or, you know, any of the, any of those guys, uh, those guys are bad, big men, you know, wielding axes and chopping people up, right? Jedediah Grant was different. He was a skinny sort of frail man, and he gets called Brigham's sledgehammer. And he's called Brigham's sledgehammer because he had the ability to do in word what, you know, Porter Rockwell could do in deed. Jedediah Grant had a way with words. He could terrify you deep down into your bones. He was known as a sledgehammer because of his extremely conservative viewpoints. He had this consuming religiosity about him and this fanaticism and, of course, he was the father of Heber J. Grant, but luckily for Heber, uh, he, you know, he dies when Heber is just a baby, so he doesn't raise Heber. But he has this fanaticism, and he preaches a three-day fiery sermon that tough winter. Um, he goes down to Kaysville, Utah. It's, it's this really rough winter, and he gives a three-day sermon to the saints. I'm going to read you parts of some of his sermons, and I'm going to link to this. this one of the sermons is in the Journal Discourses and is titled Rebuking Iniquity. It's worth reading these sermons in their entirety. He says, quote, Some have received the priesthood and a knowledge of the things of God, and they still dishonor the cause of truth, commit adultery, and every other abomination beneath the heavens, and then meet you here or in the street and deny it. These are the abominable characters that we have in our midst, and they will seek unto the wizards that peep, and to the stargazers and soothsayers, because they have no faith in the holy priesthood. And then when they meet us, they want to be called saints. The same characters will get drunk and wallow in the mire and filth, and yet they call themselves saints and seem to glory in their conduct, and they pride themselves in their greatness and their abominations. They are the old hardened sinners and are almost, if not altogether, past improvement and are full of hell. 
and my prayer is that God's indignation may rest upon them and that he will curse them from the crown of their heads to the soles of their feet. I say that there are men and women that I would advise to go to the president immediately and ask him to appoint a committee to attend to their case and then let a place be selected and let that committee shed their blood. End quote. That's an intense speech. And this is, this is one of many, 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 many sermons he gives, right? Now, imagine sitting in the audience in the hard wooden pews. You're starving, you're complaining, and you hear something like that. That, you know, maybe if you're, if you're complaining, you just need to go to your leaders and have them end it for you. Here is him addressing the topic of plural marriage, which he does many times, but here's a quote. He says, quote, And we have women here who are like anything but the celestial law of God. And if they could break asunder the cable of the Church of Christ, there is scarcely a mother in Israel but would do it this day. And they talk it to their husbands, to their daughters, and to their neighbors. And they say, they have not seen a week's happiness since they've become acquainted with that law or since their husbands took a second wife. They want to break up the Church of God and to break it from their husbands and from their family connections. Then again, there are men that are used as tools by their wives, and they are just as little better in appearance and in their habits than a little black boy. They live in filth and nastiness. They eat it and drink it, and they are filthy all over. We have elders and high priests that are precisely in this predicament, and yet they are wishing more of the Holy Ghost. They wish to have it in larger doses. They want more revelation. But I tell you that you now have more than you live up to more than you practice and make use of. If I hurt your feelings, let them be hurt. And if any of you ask, do I mean you? I answer yes. If any woman asks, do I mean her? I answer yes. And I want you to understand that I am throwing the arrows of God Almighty among Israel. I do not excuse any. I am speaking to you in the name of Israel's God, and you need to be baptized and washed clean from your sins from your backslidings, from your apostasies, from your filthiness, from your lying, from your swearing, from your lusts, and from everything that is evil before the God of Israel. We have been trying long enough with this people, and I go in for letting the sword of the Almighty be unsheathed, not only in word, but in deed. I go in for letting the wrath of the Almighty burn up the dross and the filth. And if the people will not glory the Lord by sanctioning themselves, Let the wrath of the Almighty God burn against them and the wrath of Joseph and Brigham and Heber and of high heaven, end quote. Fiery sermons, right? And I hope you'll permit my uh, sort of impassioned reading about this, but I can't imagine them being read any other way. Imagine this sort of frail man with gaunt cheeks pounding his fists on the pulpit. It would have been intense. This is an intense man, very intense, and it had its intended effect. The dude is basically calling out the sins of everyone and threatens that if they don't recommit to their church, their blood could literally be spilt, not in word, but in deed, as he says. He says, not in word, but in deed. So, of course, this results in 500 people offering themselves to be rebaptized to reform their religious and spiritual lives. You know, he, his whole theme of his speeches are calling for repentance and and a general recommitment. He's saying, we're suffering because of your wickedness. You're complaining. That's making you wicked. And you need to recommit to the moral and religious teachings. So 500 people get baptized. um, And then the Kaysville situation sort of 
And the message starts to spread all over the territory and saints everywhere start presenting themselves for rebaptism. They become really eager, really motivated, if you will, to rededicate their lives to this gospel. Church members started making new covenants. They were ordained to new offices in the priesthood. They received their temple ordinances. A lot of them start to enter plural marriage. And because of this, because it's successful here, it sort of inspires church leaders to ramp it up. And so all three members of the church's first presidency start giving some of the fieriest sermons, the most intense and violent sermons during this time. They talk a lot about the impending second coming. According to Young, he said, quote, The time is coming when justice will be laid to the line and righteousness to the plummet, when we shall take the old broadsword and ask, Are you for God? And if you are not heartily on the Lord's side, you will be hewn down. During this really brutal winter, the church leaders start adding to the roster and they hold special meetings, more and more and more meetings, where more sermons of these kinds are either taught by the apostles or get regurgitated by local leaders. And you can imagine this, you know, picture some, some bishop who has heard tell of these, decides to give his own version of this based on his own sort of incomplete knowledge of what's being taught. I'm, I'm sure some really crazy things were being preached at this time. Rebaptism increases significantly, and you have Jedediah Grant giving rhetoric like this. I love his, I'm sorry to quote from him, but I love, <laughs> love his sermons. They're just like, they give me chills. He says, quote, I seriously question when some people are baptized, whether they do not come out of the water the same poor, miserable devils as they went in, end quote which doesn't really give a lot of faith to the, the ordinance of baptism, right? Where you're supposed to be washed clean. He was like, well, maybe, maybe it's not working on some of you. That's how bad you are. Public confession becomes normal. As Heber C. Kimball would preach, he says, quote, Last evening, I attended the high priest quorum, and perhaps there were 100 or 150 high priests present. In that meeting, Brother Brigham gave permission to the members of the quorum to be baptized in the font. But he objected to anyone going into that font to be baptized for the remission of sins until he had actually repented of and made restitution for the sins he had committed. If any of them had done anything wrong, he wished them to confess to those he had aggrieved or injured and make restitution. And wherein they had committed sins and violated their priesthood and their covenants, they must make satisfaction to those who have, they have injured and not step into that font until they have done these things. I do not consider that one of my wives or one of my children has a right to partake of these emblems until they make a full and proper restitution to me if they have offended me. Why is this? Because I am their head. I am their governor, their dictator, their revelator, their prophet, and their priest. And if they rebel against me, they at once raise a mutiny in my family. I forbid all unworthy persons partaking of the sacrament. And if such do partake, they shall do it on their own responsibility and not on mine. In partaking unworthily, a person is corroding and destroying himself, not me. This ordinance is a minister on condition of your living in righteousness and of your hearts being true to your God and to your brethren, end quote. Now, this is really interesting when you put this in um, comparison. It's not that Heber C. Kimball is just being a jerk, right? These are the literal temple endowments that have now developed where women are committing themselves to the obedience of their husbands. So if you get your endowments out, if you go through the endowment house with Heber C. Kimball, you are promising that he is your prophet, your revelator, your priest, and your governor. I don't know about dictator. I feel like that's a maybe a Heber's take a little bit, but it's really, it's really 
based in the temple ordinances. And this is still, this language still exists in the temple today. Now, at this time, plural marriage had been around for really only a little over a decade. But you got to remember, that was like the elite. The general church membership had only been practicing it out in the open for four years. And as historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich says, there's really no template for this. Nobody knew how to do this. No one had lived with plural parents before. They didn't know how to do this. So it was a confusing and difficult time for families adjusting to this new order of marriage. And the sermons would specifically focus on the necessity of this and, you know, give them penalties and threats for motivation because there was a lot of discord and a lot of unhappiness and a lot of divorce. Here's Heber C. Kimball in a sermon again. He says, quote, I have no wife nor child that has any right to rebel against me. If they violate my laws and rebel against me, they will get into trouble just as quickly as though they transgress the counsels and teachings of Brother Brigham. Does it give a woman a right to sin against me because she is my wife? No, but it is her duty to do my will as I do the will of the Father and my God. Again, temple language. It is the duty of a woman to be obedient to her husband, and unless she is, I would not give a damn for all her queenly right and authority, nor for her either. If she will quarrel and lie about the work of God and the principle of plurality, I tell you, as the Lord God Almighty lives, my sword is unsheathed, and I will never sheathe it until those of you who have done wrong repent of your evil deeds. Some of you have found fault because I am so plain and severe. No man can rise up here with his sophistry and silver lips and have the Holy Spirit for a moment. A disregard of plain and correct teachings is the reason why so many are dead and damned and twice plucked up by the roots. And I was soon as baptized a devil as some of you. You call that a hard saying, do you not? End quote. And of course, here's some, here's some sermons from Brigham Young. He says, quote, suppose you found your brother in bed with your wife and put a javelin through both of them you would be justified and they would atone for their sins and be received into the kingdom of God. I would at once do so in such a case and under the circumstances, I have no wife whom I love so well that I would not put a javelin through her heart and I would do it with clean hands. There is not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their God that will not be required to pay the debt. The blood of Christ will never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it, end quote. Now, luckily for me, as a Mormon girl, I was never raised with this kind of rhetoric. I was raised with other kinds of rhetoric. But this is, this is what I want to say. When you have church leaders saying things like that, like you can put a javelin through your wife's heart if you find her in bed with another man, totally justified. Think about how that translates to people with less education, less power, less resources than Brigham Young. We see this happening in a lot of funky ways. And of course, when Brigham Young would be asked for a to account for that, he would say, uh, I didn't tell anyone to do that. That's not on me. They didn't do it the way that I said. And I think about, you know, maybe how I remember hearing President Hinckley talking about earrings, right? Take out your second piercing. President Hinckley is a contemporary prophet. And I was there for the fireside when he tells you to take out the earring and I took out the earring. Well, by the time I was teaching young women's, we had young women leaders who were talking about you could only wear a modest pair of earrings, modest pair, that, that was their word. And you could... And it could only look, uh, it couldn't be too shiny. And if it dangled, it was bad. And, and they sort of take these things that leaders have said and put their own spin on it, which is exactly what was happening during this time period. 
Of course, the Mormon Reformation would settle down drastically, but slowly, after Jedediah Grant dies. He dies on one of the winter tours from pneumonia, but his influence would last. On December 30th, right after Christmas in 1856, the entire all-Mormon Utah territorial legislature was rebaptized for a remission of their sins, and they get their, uh, they're reconfirmed by the Twelve Apostles. Now, Grant's influence and the feverish tone would add to the conflicts leading up to the Mountain Meadows Massacre and other massacre and, and conflicts in 1857. Remember, this is right before all of these things happen. You did not want to be a dissident Mormon at this time. I mean, you think it's hard to question things now. This is not when you wanted to do it. This is where we really see a solidification of the idea of destroying angels or the Danites, which were allegedly the secret group of Mormons carrying out blood atonement and God's will and protecting the saints and some doing it on Brigham Young's orders. There are many instances of this group acting out God's vengeance on sinners. A Southern Utah Mormon and militia scout named John Chatterley claimed that he had received threats from a, quote, secret committee called Destroying Angels in early 1857. Now, many historians like Will Bagley claim that the Danites came by it honestly. They were acting out their faith as best they saw fit after hearing violent quotes by their leaders. For example, this, this one was printed in the Desert News in April of 1856, quote, and this is from Brigham Young in, in the Desert News, quote, Will you love your brothers and sisters likewise? When they have committed a sin that cannot be atoned for without the shedding of their blood, will you love that man or woman well enough to shed their blood? That is what Jesus Christ meant. Later on, he says, Any of you who understand the principles of eternity, if you have sinned a sin requiring the shedding of blood, accept the sin unto death, would not be satisfied or rest until your blood should be spilled, that you might gain the salvation you desire. This is the way to love mankind. End quote. Here you have Brigham Young equating Jesus's speeches of loving one another, meaning killing them for their sins. I mean, when I try to look at this with sympathy or empathy, I see men that have been traumatized by war and conflict for several decades now. They had become so radicalized in their faith, the ends justified the means. They had been in mob conflicts, their prophets had been killed. They really become violent men. I mean, and, and they start to equate their scriptures. You, you can see this in any sort of radical extremist groups now, right? ISIL uh, uses similar language that they are using that uh, God's justice is met by killing people and shedding their blood. Brigham Young gave this sermon where he said, quote, If you want to know what to do with a thief that you may find stealing, I say kill him on the spot and never suffer for him to commit another iniquity. I will prove my works whether I can mete out justice to such persons or not. I would consider it just as much my duty to do that as to baptize a man for the remission of his sins, end quote. Here you have Brigham Young saying, you can kill a man who's a thief. It's just as good. It's, it's like baptizing him. The, the, the justice in God's kingdom is the same. I mean, there are so many of these quotes I could go on and on and on, like, like uh, this one. Brigham Young gave, this is loving your neighbor as yourselves. If he needs help, help him. And if he wants salvation and it is necessary to spill his blood on earth in order that he may be saved, spill it, end quote. Do your neighbor a favor and kill him if he's a sinner. You're doing him a favor. It's like the proverbial letting him borrow a cup of sugar, but you're giving him eternity. 
Now, like I said, when confronted with accusations of blood atonement or Danites, Young would deny it. And he denied such acts were by church leadership. In a speech in 1867, he would say, quote, Is there war in our religion? No, neither war nor bloodshed. Yet our enemies cry out bloodshed. And oh, what dreadful men these Mormons are and those Danites, how they slay and kill. Such is all nonsense and folly in the extreme. The wicked slay the wicked and they will lay it out on the saints, end quote. Now, of course, this is a decade after Brigham Young is charged for many, many crimes, including being responsible for Mountain Meadows and, you know, the the murder of Dr. Robinson and lynchings like Thomas Coleman, who end up, you know, dead on Capitol Hill. There are all kinds of violent, bloody deaths and massacres that happen from the time that Brigham Young starts to deny it in 67 and in the Mormon Reformation. And it's pretty convenient rhetoric to say, we don't do that, after you've been actively encouraging it for a good period of years. Now, did Brigham Young ever do that himself? My personal belief is no, he didn't have to. But as we know, that there were, there were plenty of willing people to do it for him. This was really, truly a faith forged at the time out of fear and fanaticism. And I know some historians would say that Brigham is not responsible for, you know, these killings and massacres. And I will allow you this. I will say, fine, Brigham is not responsible. He didn't pull the trigger. He didn't use the sword. But if you say that Brigham Young's hands are clean from any of this violence, I would say you're wrong. I would say you're clearly wrong. You don't get to call yourselves the arbiter, the dictator, the leader, the ruler of their faith and their salvation, and that your word is from God, and then not be responsible for that. You just are. You're complicit. At the very, at the very least, Brigham Young is complicit in a lot of the, these acts of violence. Now, according to historian Paul H. Peterson, these pledges of rebaptism and and plural marriage and conformity really lead to a huge increase of plural marriage. Now, you now you got to remember that when this doctrine comes out, it is not accepted. It's like it's like going into your Mormon ward right now and telling people they have to practice plural marriage. You've heard about it. You've known about it. You know that Brigham Young did it. But that doesn't mean you want to do it, right? So men had really been trying to put this off. You have stories of men actively trying to put this off or telling their leaders no and women doing the same things. These are good men. They, they knew it would break the hearts of the women that they loved. And we see men and women in their journals starting to submit. Now, Stanley Ivins uh, does a lot of statistical research, and he estimates that the number of plural marriages um, were 65% higher in, during the Mormon Reformation, 1856 and 57, than in any other two-year two period in Utah. Most, 65% of all the plural marriages happen during the Mormon Reformation. And I would say there is an incentive to do so. So not only did it increase rebaptism and plural marriage, but it really does begin to emotionally prepare everyone, all the Mormons, to engage in the upcoming Utah war. Historian James Allen and Glenn Leonard point out that the Mormon Reformation, quote, may have accounted for the fact that the following year the saints were emotionally prepared to confront the army of the United States and route to Utah. 
Here's how Wikipedia explains uh, the Mormon Reformation. It's pretty good. It says, quote, During this conflict known as the Utah War, Mormon militia were asked to engage in diversionary actions on the plains and in Wyoming, and church members were prepared under Young's direction to abandon and destroy their homes, farms, businesses, and move again to the White Mountains of Arizona, which Young had selected as a possible place of refuge should a full-scale war begin. Historians have also asserted that emotional rhetoric contributed to the defensive dialogue and actions in southern Utah, which ultimately burst forth in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Also during this time, leaders at church headquarters established a policy of assigning two home or ward missionaries in each congregation, congregational unit. They were asked to visit each warden and assess their material needs and provide help where possible. They were also asked to inquire into family members' spiritual commitment, including asking searching questions about religious practices. After some months of these missionary visits, Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City and surrounding communities who had not been rebaptized were asked to do so in an expression of their ongoing commitment to the church. Paul H. Peterson asserts that those who refuse to be rebaptized might lose their membership in the church. In Britain, zealous application of Reformation principles resulted in trimming from church rules a large number of the less committed. A modest number of less zealous church members left the Utah area, returning to the East or traveling to California, end quote. Okay, and in the next episode, we're going to talk more about Mountain Meadows, and we're going to talk about these catechisms with these, with these home teachers and things like that. So that's coming up. But I bring all of this up to go back to Bertha King. Remember Bertha King who leaves her husband, who divorces her husband, David Canlin? I want you to have some context for her life and for her marriage. It's in March of 1856 that a man named Brigham Young Hampton is rebaptized in City Creek. Okay? Brigham Young Hampton. And I'm going to call him Brigham Hampton for context because we have so many Brigham Youngs. Brigham Hampton has a very interesting story. The gist is that his mother is Julia Foster, who was an early Mormon in Nauvoo. And you might know that name because Brigham Young wanted her for his wife after the death of his first wife. He sort of fell in love with her. But so did Jonathan Hampton. So Brigham lets Julia Foster choose between them, and she chooses Jonathan. However, she kind of regrets this, and she lets Brigham Young name her firstborn son. And not a guy to be modest, Brigham Young names the son, who was not his own son, Brigham Young Hampton. It's kind of a stick it in the face to Jonathan Hampton. Thus, we have Brigham Young Hampton. Hampton's father, Jonathan, passed away shortly after the family arrives to Utah, and Brigham Young, the prophet, gets his wish, and Julia Foster becomes sealed to Brigham Young for time and for eternity. He kind of takes her away from Jonathan. And she gets put in charge for a time, the Lion House. And this would have been a great honor at the time. But Their plural marriage bliss would be short-lived, and we don't know why, and um, pretty soon she marries another man after, it's written, quote, a misunderstanding. Anyway, that's Brigham Young Hampton's parents. Um, We know that Hampton meets Bertha King just two years after her wedding to David Canlin. So let's take stock. Bertha was 19, married and divorced, and at 21, age 21, she's married to husband number two, Brigham Hampton. Now, Hampton was rebaptized in the Mormon Reformation. He's very close to his uh, godfather, Brigham Young. Brigham Young marries them in his office, and this new couple were said to keep house in the seventh ward. Okay, so this brings us to Pioneer Day, July 24th, 1857. 
This was about 150, 960 years ago. Now, Bertha and Brigham Hampton are married, newlywed couples, and they start up taking up a wagon up Big Cottonwood Canyon. Now, unfortunately for Bertha, she's seven months pregnant. I can't imagine what that would have been like making that trip up Cottonwood Canyon. A lot of you can go up there and go skiing and go hiking. It's a beautiful canyon. I've been up there lots. I like to hike up there. Let's see how Orson F. Whitney describes the scene. Quote, he says, On July 23rd of 1857, the pioneers assembled to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the entry into the Salt Lake Valley. The grand celebration took place on the banks of Silver Lake at the head of Big Cottonwood Canyon. Many left their homes and traveled on horseback or in vehicles to Silver Lake. It was a merry sight to see them come, wagons loaded with camping outfits, bedding, provisions, and human beings of all sizes and ages. They talked of old times at Kirtland, Nauvoo, and winter quarters, spoke of their trials in the subduing desert. They pitched their tents on the banks of the lake. Three spacious boweries with plank floors had been erected on the big cottonwood lumber. At sunset, the bugler summoned the campers, and President Brigham Young addressed them. President Kimball dedicated the spot for the celebration the next day. Then some retired, but many danced the evening hours away. The next morning on the 24th, the stars and stripes were unfurled from the summits of the two highest mountain peaks that surrounded the lake. Prayer was offered, the choir sang, the cannon roared, the bands played, and the military performed. There was dancing, boating, picnicking, playing games, climbing the hills, strolling, and resting under the trees, end quote. Now I go up to Silver Lake with my family all the time, and you can see the big peaks, and it's it's a wonder to picture, you know, the stars and stripes being unfurled, and it's also this weird tension between the 4th and July 24th, especially in 1857, they know that the government could be on their way to get them. At this very time that they're hanging the stars and stripes from the mountain peaks, the Mormons are being falsely charged with being in a state of rebellion against the United States government. And Johnson's army is said to be leaving for Utah to stop the the rebellion. This event up Cottonwood Canyon drew almost 3,000 people. They used 464 carriages and wagons, 1,028 horses and mules, 332 oxen and cows, and it was a two-day trek to make it to the top of the canyon. There were athletic events and games and drills by militias, dancing. They fired off the howitzer. Uh, It was very patriotic. According to Bob Floodlines, A History of Big Cottonwood Canyon, he says, quote, Orrin Porter Rockwell and two other pioneers arrived at the height of the celebration with news that the then U.S. President James Buchanan was sending federal troops to the Salt Lake Valley to put down the Mormons. So picture this. They're celebrating. They're enjoying all of this. Brigham Young is about to give a speech. And in rides Warren Porter Rockwell saying, the federal troops are here and they're coming to destroy us. Here's what Brigham Young tells the crowd to thunderous applause. He says, God is with us and the devil has taken me at his word. In 12 years, I will either be president of the United States or dictate who will be. And of course, the crowd roars. And of course, we know that 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 prophecy doesn't happen. It's really impossible to convey the panic and the fear that Mormons would have felt at this time. I would need far more than this episode to discuss it. But I think, you know, in the episodes we've talked about in the, you know, in episodes of the 40s and the 50s, we talk about this fear and panic that they're feeling. But for this story, just know that Brigham Hampton and Bertha King are really caught up in this fear. They arrive home on July 26th and Bertha would give birth on August 16th. 
A month later, Brigham Young calls for 50 volunteers. Hampton doesn't know what the volunteers are for, but suspected it's for war against the soldiers, and he volunteers immediately. Five days later after he volunteers, his baby son was blessed and named Brigham Young by Orson Hyde. So now we have Brigham Young Hampton and his son Brigham Young Hampton. Bertha would eventually have a daughter and two more sons in 1863. She would be 27 and have four children when Brigham Hampton enters plural marriage. He is sealed to Helen Emily Bone. And we know that Bertha was asked to accompany Helen and Hampton to the, down, to the endowment house to witness the sealing and to sit over the altar with a couple. Wilford Woodruff, Heber C. Kimball, and President Brigham Young were there to witness it. So she gives her husband, Hampton, away in plural marriage. This would be her second time in plural marriage. Her first marriage, of course, she was fourth wife, and it didn't go so well. That evening when Hampton went home, he went to visit his wife, Helen, and instead he finds a note from her. Now, this is pretty dramatic. He goes home ready to consummate the marriage, and instead here's a note where this woman, Helen Emily Bone, says, I'm sorry, but I have escaped to Montana with a Gentile. She said she didn't believe in the ceremony. She didn't, it was a sham. She said, don't follow me. This is not what I want. And you can read this entire story in Playing With Shadows. It's a book that in the Kingdom of the West series, it's hard to find, but I'm going to link to it because it's fantastic. And of course, this would have been really insulting to a man like Brigham Hampton, who was really out to impress, as we see throughout his life, Brigham Young. Now, a week later, she turns up. She was an Australian convert, and she was 21 at the time. And we don't know what difficulties led her to beg for Hampton's forgiveness, but she literally begs for his forgiveness in the middle of the street. She shows up in the middle of the street in daylight and says, I was wrong, please take me back. We don't know what happened, but it must have been bad. Hampton wrote in his journal that he settled their difficulties partially, but when he and Bertha left for the Cotton Mission to southern Utah, Helen remained in Salt Lake City with her father until she joins him a year later. And this is all from Kingdom in the West, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to this book. It's an expensive book, but it tells the story of Brigham Hampton, and it's fantastic. It's so good. She returns after living with her father to southern Utah because she's pregnant. Now, I want to talk about this too. Mormons today have this really unique idea about sexuality and exclusivity, and we don't want people to masturbate because it feels like we're cheating on our spouses. And that's fine and good. Commitment is great. However, it was not the same for Mormon pioneers. Mormons on the frontier did not live very long. Mormons would have multiple sexual partners throughout their life. The majority of Mormons would. It was just the way things went. As we see with Bertha, Bertha is already married to two men. She's had two sexual partners in her life. Now, Hampton is going to have two sexual partners so far. And his wife, Helen, obviously has multiple sexual partners. It, it was looked differently than it is now. There was a lot more fluidity. And you can argue that the system of plural marriage really brought that for men and actually for women. Now, not always under ideal circumstances. So I'm not saying it's equitable, but I am saying it's unique because the way that we look at marriage and commitment now is not the way that it would have been on the frontier. Helen shows up pregnant, okay? The circumstances and the dates of her pregnancy are suspicious, and so Hampton claims he lived with her for the first time a month earlier, 
And he says, quote, her actions, which were to say the least, not that of a wife to a husband when she was about to be confined, end quote. Scandalous. Nevertheless, Helen gave birth to a daughter a month later, and the baby girl was a stillbirth. This, this woman is having bad luck. Strangely, this is when things start to turn south for Bertha. By the accounts I can find, Bertha stood steadily by Hampton, even giving him away in marriage to Helen. But we know that after he started living, trying to live plurality with Helen, things really start to turn ugly. Hampton records in his journal, quote, In the spring of 1865, my wife Bertha, being dissatisfied, started to California by stage. I sold all her household furniture to get money to pay her passage and to keep her sometimes after her arrival in California. She left her four children with me, end quote. According to famous Mormon dissident Fanny Stenhouse, Bertha had told her that, quote, her husband whipped her because she would not consent to his stripping in their home of everything that was either useful or handsome in order to furnish a house for the second wife. Finally, he shut her up while he took her entire furniture away, end quote. So if that's true, Bertha said, don't give all my good stuff to your second wife, and he beat her for it. Uh, and it was enough, it was bad enough that Bertha would leave her four children and of course, they belong to the husband under a Mormon law. And so she left. Hampton then moves Helen into the house that Bertha had vacated. Apparently, Bertha's trip backfired, and she had to return home and beg to be, you know, let back in her home. Hampton wasn't as forgiving as he was with Helen, and he made Bertha and her mother, Hannah Tapfield King, petition directly to Brigham Young at the Lion House. Bertha actually goes in with her mother to Brigham Young and is crying and is repentant. So Hampton finally relents and moves Helen back to her old home and Bertha back into her original home. You can imagine what kind of conflict this would cause both women. But again, look at the rhetoric. Is it better to beat a wife that complains or slit her throat? That December, Bertha gives birth to another daughter, and the daughter would only live two years. Bertha had another son in 1866 and then a daughter in 1867. What's interesting about this birth is that it appears that at this point, Bertha refused to let the daughter Lilia Victoria to be blessed. She was apparently, quote, dissatisfied with the principles of the gospel. Bertha would have more children with Hampton, but it's very clear that life with him was unpleasant. He would take his second wife, Helen, to a ball in 1870. The next night, he took a new woman, Miss Mary Jane R. Robinson, to the ball. And here's where it gets even more dramatic. So now he's, he's dating, he's courting this third woman, Mary Jane Robinson, and Helen, the second wife, shows up to the ball and raised, quote, by historical records, a squall. She shows up, she's upset, he's taken another woman to the ball. He apparently is undeterred or unembarrassed by this event, and five days later, he proposes to Miss Mary Jane R. Robinson, and several days later, he marries her in the endowment house, this time with no wife standing by as witnesses. Big surprise. This third marriage becomes particularly hard for Helen. Four months later, she, quote, attacks Hampton in the public street and, according to him, scratched and tore my clothes. He claims he had been repeated insult and injury from the day he married Mary. So Helen becomes angry and bitter and tries to violently harm him in the street. Of course, Hampton just sees this as unruly. And the next night, he takes his third wife, Mary, to another ball. And the next day, Hampton shows up in Bishop's court, 
probably for domestic assault against Helen. Now, at this time, LDS Church, the LDS Church had developed an elaborate court system as a way to handle disputes among members, especially family disputes or marital disputes. And so it's it's like a part of the law. It actually becomes legal. And the bishop's court was the lowest level. So like what you would go for a disciplinary court, imagine it having some law behind it. You could actually go to jail based on what your bishop said. So Hampton shows up here, probably for assaulting Helen over these conflicts. This first charge was by Bishop Andrew Hill Burton, who was also a policeman. It said that at the bishop's court that, quote, she found all manner of fault with me and without cause and would not listen to the counsel of bishop and said she would destroy my property and insult me every opportunity on the public street until I would treat her better and until she got revenge, end quote. On July 18th, Hampton lawyers up to the probate court for a divorce um, after he gets advice from Brigham, Brigham Young, President Brigham Young. Now, this is likely that it happened outside of LDS church court, and it's likely now that Helen has left the church. The suit is dismissed because um, Helen claims she doesn't want a divorce. It, was, it would seem by the records, it's hard to tell, but that Helen was in love with Hampton at this point and didn't want a divorce but couldn't stand the thought of him taking a younger wife. So she was kind of punishing him. She wanted some, you see her in the records really grasping for power, some sort of control in her life because she has none. Now, at this point, Hampton gets embroiled in a lot of other legal issues. He's a constable in Salt Lake City now and has been involved with breaking up saloons and brothels. You can read about this history. Um, it's fascinating and sordid. I really do need to, you know, talk about the, the history in the book um, that compares prostitution and polygamy. It's really great. But eventually what happens, Brigham, Brigham Hampton owns some holding companies for Brigham Young, and he eventually takes the fall for the church. He becomes a scapegoat for leasing a brothel for the church. Uh, their property uh, leases a brothel, and the brothel gets busted. And um, it's one of the most famous brothels in Utah, and it's leased under his name, and it's fascinating. And he gets he's like responsible for helping set up a sting where they're trying to, you know, they're hiring uh prostitutes to set up Mormon men and they're watching through holes in the in the walls and it's really scandalous. So we'll talk about that hopefully later. But anyway, he's having problems. In 1870, Mary, his third wife, would have her first child. And a month after this birth, Helen again takes her case to the LDS court system and charges him at the high council for not complying with a bishop's court order to treat her better. So Hampton shows up to the court and instead of being on trial, the high council gave out this verdict, quote, My decision is that Sister Helen E. Hampton accept the terms Brother Hampton has to offer and do the best she can. Take the house Brother Hampton offers and make it as clean and comfortable as possible. And when her husband visits her, welcome him, treat him kindly and affectionately. And Brother Hampton must do the best he can to make her happy and comfortable by providing for her, visiting her, and to be her husband, end quote. What he ended up doing was taking all of his children, including Bertha's children, who were now living with Helen, and moving them all into Mary's house. He claims that Helen was abusive to them. So he takes all the, the children away from his wife and gives them to the new wife, which I imagine would have been an adjustment for the new wife, Mary. By April of that year, he convinces the high council to let him divorce Helen against her will, and the high council refuses it. This does show the sort of power and um, autonomy that some women had in polygamy. 
they were able to have a little bit more power over their marriage and divorce than men in some of these situations. That December, Hampton is arrested for the murder of Dr. King Robinson, who, we, who I mentioned earlier. Now, I've talked about Dr. Robinson on the Color of Heaven podcast. His story is actually pretty fascinating and important to the story of Brigham Young, his defensiveness, Mountain Meadows, the Utah period, and of course, Brigham Young Hampton. Connell O'Donovan is one of my favorite historians. He does history, Mormon history, that very few people have done. And I'm going to link to his site, and you should read his paper. I'm going to quote from him what he says about uh, Dr. Robinson's murder. This is Connell O'Donovan. He says, quote, Dr. Robinson, a non-Mormon native of Maine, but most recently a resident of California, was appointed assistant surgeon at Camp Douglas in early 1866. In the spring of 1866, the non-Mormon physician married Ellen Kay, the daughter of a well-loved LDS dentist and polygamist, Dr. John Moburn Kay, who had died two years earlier while on a mission in London. The 18-year-old Ellen and her mother, Ellen Crowcroft Kay, had left the church after Dr. K's death, apparently over Dr. K's polygamy. Yet the LDS community grew very angry that Ellen had married a non-Mormon. Audaciously, Dr. King Robinson then claimed the Wasatch Hot Springs on the side of Capitol Hill as his, since it was unoccupied and appeared to be in the public domain, and he constructed a small building there with the intent to build a bathhouse. The city corporation, however, claimed it was their property, and the city marshal, Andrew Burt, and a force of armed police officers police officers destroyed the building and, and ejected the doctor from the property. Robinson then took the matter to court. Although Dr. Robinson actually had a good claim, he still lost the case. Robinson informed the court he intended to appeal. Two days later, on October 11, 1866, a bowling alley that Robinson owned was then reduced to rubble by a group of 25 axe and sledgehammer-wielding men, all in disguise with blackened faces. Although police chief Andrew Burton and two of his subordinates were recognized and they were arrested but later released on bail. On Sunday of October 12th, around 11.30 at night, the doctor was summoned from his bed by a man who told him that his brother had fallen from a mule and broken his leg, requiring immediate medical services. Just 175 steps from his home on Main Street, Robinson was struck on the head twice with a sharp object and then shot in the brain. Somehow he survived for about two hours before it dying in his young wife's arms in their home. Despite multiple eyewitnesses, two of whom were only six feet away on a well-lit main street, no one could or would identify the three attackers. And just as in the case of Coleman less than two months later, the verdict of the coroner's jury was that the deceased had been killed at the hands of persons unknown, end quote. Now, I'm going to hopefully talk about Dr. Robinson and his wife uh, soon. I know I make promises all the time, and we'll see if we get to them, but I love this story. But his murder makes it, 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 it's just all over the country, and this is more pressure. There were already rumors about the 1857 massacre, and now this non-Mormon Dr. Robinson's stuff is, mar is ruined because he married a Mormon woman, and now he's dead. And of course, through a series of events, Brigham Hampton has the murder pinned on him. He, he was the guy that, you know, fell for the brothel and um, was a scapegoat for the brothel, and he did time, and now he is, he's doing time for the murder. And there's actually, during this time, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it, but 
during this time, he spends four months in jail. And um, we know that Helen and Mary both visit. Now, Bertha King is nowhere to be seen right now. She doesn't want anything to do with Hampton, does not visit him in jail. Four months into the jail time, Helen has a vicious encounter with Hampton and yells and screams at him in jail. She then goes to Mary's house and does the same thing. He receives an anonymous letter that someone had bribed Ellen to testify against him in the murder of the trial. Helen sort of drops off the record after this, and we see Hampton agreeing to pay her $24 a month. So some sort of agreement has been made between the two of them. But now Mary shows up more, and she starts to stand faithfully by Hampton's side as he almost takes the fall for the murder of Dr. Robinson. But he's finally freed. Um, there's, there's a story of him being in jail, and I can't remember if it's for the murder of Robinson or if it's for the brothel thing, but he is actually escorted. I think Porter Rockwell shows up or Bill Hickman. One of them shows up to escort him to, from one jail to another, and he writes in his journal, he, he is worried that Brigham Young has sent them to kill him so um, that it will be off their hands and, and the fall guy can be murdered and case closed. And when he gets there and he realizes it's, he meets Brigham Young and he's not murdered, Brigham Young sort of asks him to repent and uh, be obedient to him again. And Hampton agrees. And then, you know, in one minute, he thinks he's going to be murdered by Brigham Young. And in the next minute, he's his most loyal, faithful servant again, which is probably why he ends up being the fall guy over and over again. So Mary shows up a bunch. She gives birth to uh, several of his children. She attends meetings with him. She even publishes in the Women's Exponent, and the couple show up in the records doing uh, baptisms for the dead. Helen would show up again in 1879, this time complaining all the way up to President John Taylor, the church president, because now in 79, you know, Brigham Young would be dead. She claims that Hampton has deserted her. Uh, Hampton says, yeah, I did. I plead guilty because she's an apostate, and I'm not going to stay with an apostate. He feels really justified in abandoning her. And they go in and out of this court system for six years until a decision is made. That summer, several of their children got diphtheria and died. And four or five of Mary's children also died. And in the 1885 High Council records, Helen shows up again. And they, and they say she could have a divorce if she wanted one. In May of 1885, an article was published in Montana claiming that Helen was a mistress to a, quote, Professor Clayton for 10 years. And he had married her that year. So when this comes out in the paper, word comes back to Hampton that, oh, you know, she's been wanting money from you and she's not giving a divorce, but she's been the mistress of this Professor Clayton up in Montana. So Hampton confronts the professor who denies being married to her. Hampton then threatens him and tells him not to come anywhere near him. Helen would stay married to Hampton, although the two did not speak except through an occasional harsh letter. And she finally leaves him in 1886 with two of her children, and she leaves for Portland, Oregon to be with this Professor Clayton. As far as we know with Bertha, she met and married a man named David Kearney, uh, who was working on the railroad, and uh, go, they go to Nevada. They, they married the day after the Golden Spike ceremony in Utah. She goes on to live with him in Nevada and California, and they would have three children together, and she would end up dying in 1912. It's, it's said that she left the church. We know this caused some heartache to Hannah Tatfield King, who wanted her daughter to be faithful. But her daughter had a really rough, rough life and a rough brush with uh, plural marriage. 
We know a lot about Hampton because he was a prominent man. He uh, would go on to be sealed to many women. Uh, Margaret Rowell in 87, Hannah Banks in 87, Catherine Wells in 87, Betsy Baker in 87. And these sealings would take place in the Logan Temple in Cache Valley. He would die at age 66 in 1902, and he was buried in the Salt Lake Cemetery. His beloved third wife and loyal friend, Mary Jane, died in 1933 at the age of 84 and was buried in the Salt Lake Cemetery. That was a lot of information and a lot of names, but I tell you this to add context. When we're talking about these marital systems, these family systems, how difficult and complicated and complex they are, look at what's going on around them. When we talk about Jackson Pollock's painting, the story of pioneers, I want to point out something. I pointed this out in my Oasis talk. Here we have the story of pioneers literally reenacting their own journey. In the second, in 1857, when the pioneers are up in Cottonwood Canyon, they don their own pioneer clothes. And the pioneer clothes that, that they would wear coming across the plains, their rags, they dress up as themselves to perform this history. Now keep that in mind when you think about Bertha and Mary and Helen. These women were wives of the Reformation. They marry because of this rhetoric. It was hard. They didn't want to do it. Helen struggles. You can see she tries to run away and then she comes back. It was a harsh place to be a woman. And this is the justification that polygamy gave a lot of Mormon people was that it protected women from harsh Gentiles that would discard you like Helen was discarded. Of course, Helen struggles her entire life between being loved and wanted and having control and power in her own life. We see Mary, the third wife, who was rewarded for being obedient and standing by her husband, even though he was in so much legal trouble. These people are there because they were forged. Their relationships were forged in such a fiery time of Mormonism, the Mormon Reformation. And when we think about the pioneers going up and literally dressing up as themselves to retell their story, how do we do that as Mormons today? When, when we tell our stories, when we celebrate Pioneer Day, we are literally recreating this sort of fairy tale version of something that didn't really happen. When, when we go down to the Lion House and if we can even get them to talk about plural marriage, it's sort of this noble, beautiful deed, um, this fun historical aside in our information. But these are the lived realities of it. These, these women who struggled and agonized and took their husbands to court. And of course, it wasn't all like that, but the majority had troubles like this, where it was so painful that you would go and attack your husband in the public street and tear at his clothing. This is the story of Mormonism, and this is what we see in the pattern of Mormonism, how we sort of dress up and recreate our own story. So it gives this picture, this painting of what we want Mormonism to be, but not what Mormonism really is, if that makes sense. And that's where we go back to Jackson Pollock's painting, that we see color and depth and splashes, and we attribute meaning to it that might not be there, that, that never existed. And not only do we do that now, but they did it then. In fact, they were doing it 10 years, just 10 years after they arrived, the Mormons are rewriting their own trek into this beautiful patriotic sacrifice. People are setting up tents, the tents that they lived on in the plains that they suffered in, and now they're setting them up as a reminder. And this, to me, 
encapsulates the story of Mormonism. This is my Mormon story. This is the Mormonism I grew up in, which is heritage is more important than history. Heritage, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, become more important than what actually happened. I think all of us have a propensity to do this. I think it's human nature to sort of retell our stories with ourselves in the best light. But I also think that what that does is sort of gives an erasure to the to the women who actually struggled and sacrificed. If this principle is divine, is the thing that gets you into heaven, is the greatest sacrifice, then what is the point of erasing the pain that made their sacrifice worth it? And those are kind of the questions that this story brings up for me. So we have Pioneer Day, the Mormon Reformation, fanaticism, plural marriage, penalties. These are what our faith was forged in. And to me, this is the vibrancy that that Mormonism has. I'm not saying that it's good. I'm just saying it's vibrant. And some of that gets lost when we rewrite our stories. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider donating at yearofplygmy.com to help keep the podcast going. 